Welcome to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. Here at Evolution Recruitment NHS, we are committed to helping people and NHS organisations realise their potential. Our goal is to build trust and develop deep relationships with individuals to make doing business easier. We collaborate with NHS organisations to help them build high-performing digital teams. We achieve this by creating and sharing insights into the ever-evolving NHS and digital industries best practices. I'm Katia and I'm your host. The views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect official position or policy of their organisation. So welcome to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. Thank you for joining me today. We've got Stuart here and Simon, and we will be discussing the future of EPR within the NHS. So before we delve into your questions and the topic itself, I think it would be good to do some formal introductions. So Simon, are you happy to kick us off, please? So I'm Simon Adams, Digital Director at the Robert Jones and Agnes Hunt Orthopaedic Hospital. Um, it's a small little hospital up in Shropshire. Um, predominantly we do elective care up here but we're a specialist centre um, and have a spinal injuries unit as well. Um, I've been working in the NHS probably, well, I think back 1987 I started, so quite a long time in history and I've seen lots of changes over the time um, and been through the national programmes etc and, and now currently we're in the process of implementing an EPR at the Robert Jones, it's a System C um, solution that we're looking at here and we're aiming, hopefully, to go live in April 2024. Amazing. Thank you, Simon. Stuart? Hey, thank you, Katia. I'm Stuart Cooper, the EPR Programme Director at Worcestershire Acute Hospitals. We're a large acute provider. We've got three main sites, uh, Redditch, Alexandra Hospital, Worcester, Worcester Royal Hospital and Kidderminster Treatment Centre. We're just in the process of finishing off our phase one of our deployment, and we chose and selected Altera's Sunrise product. Uh, phase one was adult inpatient documentation across all three sites. We're in a phased approach now and we're just planning for future phases. Amazing. Thank you. So now that we are introduced, I think it would be good to get into the questions that we've got for today. So Stuart, I know you've got two, so perhaps we'll come to you first with one of your first questions and then we'll go to Simon after. Um, so would you like to start us off with firstly your question um, and also just give us a little bit of context around why you thought that this was the question you wanted to choose. I think for me, now we're live, we, we need to maintain the momentum and, and keep that. And obviously, depending whether you've gone for a phased approach, it's probably a different issue. How do you communicate with those hard-to-reach staff groups to gain successful engagement and keep that enthusiasm and learning and continued development of those services? For me, people who sit at a desk, easy to communicate to, email, internet, etc. There's a massive set of our staff, the nurses in that middle block, who work really, really hard and don't sit at a computer all day. I was just wondering if people had any ideas about that. Simon, go for it. So I think, sure, I think the dilemma about how we interact with our users and the clinical users, it's, I think it's going to be probably the unanswered question throughout any implementation because you can never manage to do enough communication with all of the users and get them engaged. Um, we're at the stage at the moment where we're doing functional design groups and we're trying to get clinicians into their meetings clearly you don't you want to you do a certain amount of repeat with it to, to bring them to the room but trying to get them to then do that as well as their clinical focus is really really difficult um so i suppose what we've done at the moment at the moment we're just sort of trying and trying again and keep doing that so we're trying to get a mixture of face-to-face -face teams like say newsletters and things like that up and running and out and about um i think covid for us changed the way that we worked quite a lot so digital got a lot more we're still on site but we're still a lot more remote so we're doing a lot more things remotely than we've done before and we've relied on teams 
I think when we've looked at it, when we're trying to do the interactions now with staff, I think we get a more positive reaction when we do it face to face, particularly with the clinical groups. And I don't, you know, it's difficult to sustain that when you're, you know, working on a program, trying to get the people into a room. So I don't think there's a right and a wrong way of doing it. But I think one of the things is that we've got to sustain it all the way. That we, it's not a process you begin and then it ends. It just carries on throughout. I think where you're at, particularly where at the end of the phase is, that's the bit where it all just starts, where people say, well, actually, that's great, but it doesn't quite do this or it doesn't quite do that. It's how you get that feedback. Um, and I think it's really difficult. Um, we're at the moment, we're struggling to get some states so we've got effectively an office on the corridor so where people can drop in and see us to, to, to mention. So we're hoping to have that in place by May. But in an ideal world, we wanted that in place in October, just gone. So it's, it's difficult. Yeah, I think you're right. You can never underestimate how much comms you need. We've tried various tips and tricks, really, from other places. We've had a space in the canteens at various sites. Um, we tried to hit people for that. We've done ward walks. We've done ward walks morning, evening and night to make sure we get that, that shift rotation. But there's still got to be a responsibility, I think, on the nursing structures to cascade. Uh, and that's the difficult part. They are so under pressure at Artrus and it's no different anywhere else. Giving them something that you're talking about delivering in 12 months is not there. They need to, to look at that patient now. Yeah, and that's the, the thing with... We're fighting up against, but you're right. It's that it's never enough. You can always do more. But what's the optimum route? That's what I'm trying to to, to get to. I, I know you don't have the answer, Simon. It's just there's got to be a way we can do this as an an NHS better. I mean, I think I agree. With you. I mean, NHS. I mean, we've got NHS Futures where a lot of publications go on to, and I, you know, I'll stick my stick head up above the parapet. I find it useful at sometimes, and I find it really annoying at others to try and use NHS Futures to find exactly what you're looking for. And it's trying to get almost like the NHS Futures bit, all of that arsenal of information available, but easily digestible by people out on the floor, sitting through a one-hour meeting to find out how to do something. Most of the clinical staff don't want to do it. They just want to get to the point. So um, it is difficult. I mean, I think the bit you mentioned there, Stuart, about going around on the wards, you know, you know, that covering all the different shift patterns, I think that's essential. I think it's really difficult, though, for the project teams to sustain that for a long period of time, particularly when most of our budgets are finite around sort of implementation. Um, it's trying to get what does it look like after and getting that bit embedded beyond it. That there has to be comms that carry on throughout. But, you know, it's an uphill task with still doing the recovery from COVID. We're still trying to get through the backlog of patients and nurses and consultants, AHPs, therapists, they're all being pulled in, in lots of different directions and, you know, they've got to get their lists and clear that. So they always see that part as a secondary element. It's how we get it further up their agenda. Yeah. For me, we're still in that stabilising our phase one. It, it's The product itself actually went in very well. It's just maintaining the focus. Some staff groups want to return to paper. So we're constantly checking if there's a drop in volume or data, data entry from various locations. And it, that's something we haven't bargained for, really, when um, we went live and, and the resource profile as well. You, you talked there, Simon, about finite resources. We have with a limited comms budget, but for anyone else, you know, I'd say maximise your comms and engagement staff. I don't know how many you've got. We've got half-time equivalent and the resource of our comms team, but that's not enough, I don't think. We're, we're probably at slightly less than you. So we're I think we're at about 0.25 at the moment on our comms plan and with the in conjunction with the um, comms team that's within the trust. But 
um, it's difficult. We know at some point we're going to have to ramp that up and we've got contingency budgets, but what we can't keep doing is raiding the contingency to do all of it. So yeah, the vision of that comms person is really important as well. We've found we've had one who was good, functional, and we've had one that was good, but innovative. And it's that innovative, I think you're really into on this and try and keep for the lifetime of your program. They they tend to be wanted elsewhere. Well, I think it's interesting. I think you've mentioned it there about the program, which gives it that definition of sort of having a sort of start, a middle and an end. And I'm coming more and more to the conclusion that it will never have an end, that it's, it's going to be a constant evolving thing. But all of the bits we do are put into cycles. The business case has a cycle to it. It's got a number of years and it's about, well, once you've gone live, what does it look like? Well, once you've gone live, you're then going to look to make improvements to it. So you iron out all the difficulties and do that. And then you're going to keep doing that iterative process. Um, so uh, I, I think probably we might need to look at about how we start, where we call it an EPR program, isn't it? I don't like the word journey. Yeah. But it, it's it, it's probably a never-ending journey, isn't it? It's like you get on the circle line in London and you're never going to get off. Um, but hopefully you might see some changes to the stations as you go around over the years. <laughs> the um, That's right, though. It's that cycle, man. We've got a lot of yeah. priority changes we want to push through off the back of our phase one. We're trying to plan for phase two. We're thinking, actually, how many of these priority changes were planned for later phases and how do we bring them forward safely without destabilising later work? And you're right, it's that cycle. I like that analogy of the, the London Circle line. I think that's that's really pertinent, that every bit of functionality we put in seems to be never ever ending. It's evolving all the time. And, and that's part of the NHS culture as well, that you get changes in data collection, data audits from the matrons. We, we need to be able to adapt to those as well as deliver the new functional blocks that we have to, to do as part of our commitment to the organisation. But I think you, you mentioned there your first fa- phase was about sort of clinical documentation for inpatients. We're currently, we've, we've done it many times where we've sort of gone to catch all the different forms that are in use within our trust. And I'd be interested to know from yourself what you found, but the number of different forms, but they're only vaguely different, but the, almost like the ownership of them and the, the possession that they want to keep that almost exactly the same when you're moving it to an electronic form. It's trying to get that shift of people's thought process to say, actually, now you're electronic. You don't need so many different forms. You can you can do it on one. And it's trying to get that shift of, of the people that are going to use the system to get them thinking the same way. And it started to happen within, within the sort of the clinical and admin workforce. But it's how you get that message across. And it has to come from them rather than from the digital people. Or the program teams yeah we started that document rationalization approach way back in 2020 because we covid brought us that opportunity so we actually turned it to uh, doc to be called document decomposition because we were taking the the documents actually you ask that question on each of these forms so how can we bring them back together and for one service that started out with just over 40 really complex, lengthy paper forms. We're ready for our phase two now to take it through. And it's actually got seven quite structured forms. Uh, and that should be an absolute winner for the, the teams because the data entry will be simple. The data will be structured so they can query it. And then you've got the benefits of being able to build on the workflow, the EPM, task management. And they just form part of the total inpatient record. Then I couldn't believe the complexity of the forms that we have out there. Some legitimately obviously because they're, they're very complex specialties but some just seemed unwieldy and now i can see because we 
we currently had a electronic document management system where all our forms were scanned in into there, all our paper. I can understand why we had the volumes that we have going through that. It hasn't been controlled, that document creation really very well. And that that's something I'd suggest to people. You can't start that decomposition too early. Yeah, I'd agree wholeheartedly. Um, I think it was interesting when you said about, sort of, was it 40 down to seven? At the moment, I think... We started off with 700 across the trust. I think we're down to about 120 or two, somewhere between 120 and 200. But I, I think there's also a bit with the suppliers just generally that the standard stuff that is done everywhere, that that's built a little bit better into their product set as well about how they capture it. So you're not having to define completely new forms and structures. But um, I'm sure all the suppliers look at it differently, but that would be a, an interesting one to see how that develops over the coming years. Because everyone should be capturing the data. We've talked about standardization in the NHS for years. Why? And we've got standard data templates about what needs to be captured. But we don't seem to have that, I don't think, personally embedded between all the various EPR suppliers yet. No, I'd agree there. And the 40 was for one service alone. I think when we looked at our um, EDMS store, we probably were in excess of about 3,000 different forms. Some were only used once or twice a year. Yeah. And we, we've similar, I think, with the paper form, it's people have generated one because, you know, for example, I don't know, you might have, in our case, an arthroplasty therapist versus a foot and ankle therapist. But the form is generally the same, but it's been stored separately into a different part of the structure. Um, so moving forward, you know, it should just be part of the patient record. It shouldn't matter what department it is, as long as they can capture that information clinically and they're not repeating it. Um, but see how we get on. You touched on it there as well, uh, just before that, Simon. The, the EPR suppliers should have a community of practice that's led by the trusts. So I'm going to pick on an, an allied health professional service. Our physio forms should not look that different to your physio forms up and down the country, specialisms notwithstanding. Why is my needs as a patient, why can't we just have a one form for the country? Yeah. And I, I think also we need to be clear about when we're talking about what form's being used for, um, but why we're, rec- we need to, you know, it's like the, why are you doing it? You know, keep asking the question why, um, because the number of times I've seen a form there, but it's almost come from a historical perspective where we fill this in. So what do you do with it after the patient's left? So, you know, and it might be it's perfectly useful for that, but then there's other bits of information they might collect, which never gets used again. Um, and it's trying to eliminate some of that wasted capture, which we don't really need some of the data that's there. It's, it's historical and we're finding. Yeah. Some of it's there to create mandatory reporting, I think, from our, from what I'm seeing from our inpatient phase one request. Some of it is there for interest and then some of it is there for clinical audit purposes as well as personal audit and revalidation for concerns. It's just trying to, to make sure that you, you capture it once for all those purposes. Yeah, and it's understanding the purpose of why you're capturing it because obviously that's key in this day and age as well that we know why we're capturing and how long we're capturing it for so it doesn't become a store forever it's stored while it's pertinent and then you've got a way of um, removing the bits that are no longer relevant so but good stuff thanks guys um so i think it's probably a good time to go into another question simon do you want to give us your question with a bit of context please yeah so i think the question i got i suppose it toying around in my mind and it was because we are doing i think it but scaling at paces. What we what do we what do you believe to be the important components to putting in an EPR successfully when you're trying to do it at scale and pace? So, um, you know, we're a small, small organisation, um, headcount of say 1,600 people. We see 100 and 
50,000 circa outpatients per year. We do around 12,000 operations per year. Um, but we're trying to then put a, a full EPR in, in probably an 18-month period, which almost feels madness. But actually, on the face of it, it shouldn't be that difficult um, when we're talking about it's for a particular specialty rather than lots of DGH. But you don't, it's difficult to get that scale between when you're doing an EPR, whether it's like for one arm of the DGH or for all of it, the efforts almost seem to be the same. I just wonder what your view about how you pick what are the important bits to make sure that that's successful. I don't know if we've already covered it because I think we've, we've mentioned comms with it, with our stakeholders, which is key, but um, if there's anything you've learned, Stuart, over the time. There's various things that we had to address before we could even consider getting ready to start the, the deployment activities. Infrastructure, stable infrastructure, Wi-Fi, um, make sure you've got the right devices for the staff. Um, and that goes from whether it be handheld for nurses doing observations, or very good, robust workstations on wheels to support doctors' rounds. So that would be infrastructure. Training needs to be very, very simple for people. Um, the, the product we have, Sunrise, is very intuitive. So we, we took the view that actually we'll teach them how to use Sunrise, not how to complete the, the medical forms, because they should be able to do that already. Uh, but making sure that you follow up that training on how to, to prep that member of staff, be it a doctor or a nurse, or have very different requirements, bridge the gap between the training and that first ward round or the first use of, of the EPR. That that proved very, very difficult in the middle of winter, in the middle of industrial action, actually getting their focus to, to recognise that. But to be fair, they, they adapted and realised sometimes too late when they hit the floor for the first time to use the EPR. That's where you needed that really good agile floor walking team across three sides. It was difficult resource-wise. But we tried to respond to people I've got a problem. It's not got my preferences set correctly and I can't see trends. We'll get someone to you within five minutes. So try not to impact on the ward rounds. Reporting as well. That That's something perhaps we overlooked throughout the the, um, the project. Well, not overlooked, but perhaps get not, not gave it the, uh, the time it deserved. Our reporting people were, were very keen to, to make sure that we could get the data out. But we hadn't anticipated the tsunami of reporting requests we get. Can it do this? Can it do that? And it wasn't just around statutory reports. It was, could I do that? Could I have that data set? Could I see it in that way? Could I view that? And using that information as well to support your benefits realisation. And then you're back through to that cycle of going back round and round. For me, that was the, the real building blocks for us. Aligned to user acceptance testing. If they design the forms and they sign the forms off and they signed it off in the system, in theory, they should have nowhere to go if there's a problem with it. In reality, we need to adapt to that. Seeing it in the wild, to admit, a very sterile test environment is a bit different sometimes. Yeah, yeah that was quite. I thought the, the interesting one, I, and I hadn't really given it any thought, was when you talked about the floor walkers. Um, was the timing that you said about we'll get something to you within a certain amount of within a certain time frame. Um, I've never looked at it like that. I suppose in floor walkers, it's always about making sure you've got people generally around and about. But I like the idea of being able to get people to give them the, the assurance that you're going to get someone to them quickly. Like, feels good, especially at go line. Yeah. So for our floor walking, we had, there's a high volume of resources we had. But for each ward as they went live, and it was over a number of weeks, we had at least two floor, work, floor walkers per ward, per shift. So we had 24-7 yeah. for those first three days. And we sort of moved on, but left a little group of floor walkers for that group so that they had less resource. 
And then it was obviously a, a, on a, a phone line through a command centre. Went down very well, but it's very intense for the teams to A, manage the floor walkers and B, to actually support that volume. But yeah, it did work. We were, we were going through a major shift in Worcester from paper, which was scanned in, to actually collecting it at the bedside. So are they still collecting some paper and scanning it in? in yeah, the we've, got, we've got that hybrid at the moment. Yeah. Well, that's the phrase we use it, but certain forms are not on the EPR, but all the the workstations have got that as a laminated list and they're getting used to that now, the nursing staff. Did cause some concerns rather than issues at the start. Where do I record this? Is it on the list? No, on paper, into the folder, scanned. And they're getting used to that now. And I think we've looked through our, our incident reporting tool, which is Datex for our trust, and there's no Datex is coming through. We get anecdotal comments and we dread, we go and address and review. So it's almost, if we identify a pocket of potential problems, I'm not saying they are actually problems or perceived problems, we send a subset of what's remained of the floor walking teams are there to almost like a, a hit squad for ones of a better phrase to mop up any issues. Yeah, well, that when we sorry, son, we that carry on. in parallel to trying to plan and get ready for phase two. So it really is a stretch on the resources, but we needed to make it land the first phase quite well. Well, it sounds like you, you, you've done very well given the scale of what you're trying to do. Um, the training that you mentioned um, that you were running with your users. Um, how close to go live did you push your training? Because obviously, the closer you can do it to go live, hopefully they remember more, etc. But I just wondered, realistically, when you've got such a high volume, and we've looked at it here, mapping out how you can get your training done in a small window, it's sort of like doesn't quite compute. <laughs> so we had two sets of users really, and we had a, a number of super users or digital champions, which we we managed to, to canvas the trust and get four hundred. They had a mixture of the online training and face-to-face in classroom, and they were spread, I wouldn't say evenly across all the locations, but it was a good spread. So so we trained those in November and December, pre-Christmas. The majority of our users, the remaining three and a half thousand or so, we pushed through the online training only through January and February. So we started our go-live on the 25th of January. That's our technical pilots, first pilot wards moved through to the other sites throughout early Feb and finished the last wars. Well, finished the last wars. The last wars went live in February. So it was really post-Christmas. So we, we squeezed it in there. And again, we all know users, training, system. Ah, I'll do it the day before. So we could, in those last few days, it's, we used the divisional structures to really push the training. And I would suggest that there was a good few hundred that didn't complete the training before their board went live. And that was an additional call on the floor walkers. What we did then was, because we were going live kind of incrementally, we were able to put a trainer onto the wards. And we had a full online training package which took between 45 minutes and an hour to complete and then we had a sort of read only 10 minute version that was enough to get them started so if they appeared on the ward and hadn't done that we'd enable their account once they'd done that 10 minute training and off they went and we quality assured that with our ccio and his deputies and his team to make sure in the pilot was that that was enough for people to go ahead safely and then do the full training towards the end of their shift did i answer your question i feel i rambled a bit this you may well have rambled but i found it very useful <laughs> um, no, I, I, the, the training dilemma I say we keep looking at, and sort of we know it's important, and it's it's how early do you engage with them? Like, how many different training packages do you need to put them through? And it, getting that mix between online and classroom um, will be an interesting way that we we've got we. 
we haven't found the solution to it yet. We're, we're still looking for that. So, what our CCIO and his team and CNIO and his team did was a series of tips and tricks videos on which they were accessible from our internet. They got quite good labels. So, how do I complete vital signs? How do I do news to etc. And they're one minute, one minute thirty videos that people can just watch. And whilst they're talking, it's almost it's a, an interactive view of how they would enter them on the system. Happy to share some of them with you if you want, Simon. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah so I think some of the bits you're describing, I think, would be worth outside of this rather cool. Yeah, it, it's quite amusing watching one or two of them because you can see one of them is actually done in the CCIO's own and his partner is another CCIO. And you can see them talking in their own home environment late at night. But it actually made a really good Smith & Jones type video for those of a certain age. I was, was going to say, a certain age group will remember Smith & Jones. And it's yeah, very funny. it was good. It worked. And it took some of the pressure off the floor walkers or allowed the floor walkers, just watch this, I'll see the next person, just watch this, and then sort of move around and cycle in the wards. By the time they'd done that a couple of times, people were just going straight to the videos. Just, I suppose, spinning out from that a little bit more, from maybe away from training, but going back to probably the first bit around engagement. Did you, how did you find in, in the different, did you find different groups communicated better than others through your, in terms of working with the programme? Um, yes and no. And I think they weren't specific to groups either. I think some, if I was to take a group, say physios, 20%, it's the old 20% I did really engaged, 60% would follow, 20% dissenters. I could apply that metric across most staff groups. The hardest to engage with were the senior doctors, senior consultants. I think yeah. that, that, and that's not disrespectful to them. They're, they're, they're very bright, intelligent, committed people. It's just that they used to do things in a certain way. And it's that clinical transformation with them on board to make the rest of the EPR work. That that was the hardest bit for me. Um, yeah, I probably wouldn't disagree with what you just described there in, in terms of where we are as well. Um, I think... It's interesting. We, I think we've got it probably where there's a couple of areas where I'd say we've got we've got slightly better engagement than others. But generally, I think your percentages or the splits are, are broadly very, very similar to where we are, um, with slight difference maybe in our consulting group at the moment. I think through the work our executive team had done with notwithstanding the doctors and the consultants, but that we were really pushing an open door to get EPR in and get it in safely. But even within that, there was passive-aggressive dissent, which you, you just you just deal with and you manage and you talk them through, you show, and you just have to bear with it. It can be quite soul-destroying, but you just have to have the patience and the, the, the presence of nerve, really, to carry on, I think. Yeah, I mean, we've got a good... I mean, we've got... We've got a program board. It's made up of a, a number of different groups, etc., that are all there, so they've all got a voice about how we're managing the program. Um, what we, we're actively doing at the moment is making sure that the programme group remembers to disseminate that information back down into their areas. We found at the beginning point some of that didn't always find its way back down the chain. So again, it probably goes back to the first thing around communicating as well, doesn't it? You have a lot of, well, we certainly had a lot of very proactive doctors and some nervous ones as well. It's just about, you, you don't like the word journey and I don't, but it is really a journey for, for them, isn't it? They're not quite sure where they're going, but they know they've got to get on the bus. It's like I say, I think it's the uncertainty that the EPR's career isn't it? It's like, is it going to do everything that the system that they had before did? And let's be honest, the paper systems that most people have been brought up with, they know work, they can trust them, etc. Trying to move them away from that, you can understand the the, un the uncertainty that it, it can create a bit when you're moving from a paper note at the end of the bed to an electronic note. Um, mm. But yeah. You mentioned, I think, devices in that as well, Stuart. And without probably speaking ill of any providers, 
did you find that there are better types of and you know that there's loads of different manufacturers of trolleys loads of different ways that you can do things within your trust did you find some something work better than others that we we did and we worked through our uh, technical partners to to assess various ones we could list yeah. the, the products here yeah no we're, we're just about to go into that i just wondered whether that might be something useful that we share wider about the different manufacturers that we're looking at people can always get added to it, i presume but um i just wonder if that might be something worth sharing back with uh ex well ex nhs digital but now nhs england frontline digitization teams i think so um we went basically on a specification that was robustness supportability battery life and size that was something we didn't consider was the actual physical size of the some of these workstations on wheels or waves as we call them um, even with a single screen, they're quite bulky in some of our smaller bays. So we, we had to buy some of those, buy some laptops on wheels, which were thinner pedestal type things. And then there's the, obviously the, the way you capture your OBS at the bedside. You don't need a workstation on wheels. You just need a small phone sized device for them to tap into really. So it's horses for courses, but we did select a preferred supplier. And the other thing I, I'd urge people to consider is how do you continue to maintain and support these? Certainly previous to buying this batch of equipment and we bought hundreds of the things we, we we had dozens if not hundreds of laptops on wheels out around the estate that were in various states of use and usability and they just weren't supported so the wheel fell off they just uh, stayed in the corner now what we've got is a full service wrap through our technical services provider so anything goes wrong on the car on the cars fuse electronics wheel falls off or a screen falls off there's a managed service wrap that actually addresses that. So hopefully it'll extend the life of these quite expensive bits of kit. Yeah. And yeah, perhaps, again, happy to share with you offline, Simon, that how we went through that. Yeah. No, thank you, Stuart. Very useful. Brilliant. So, Stuart, you have got one other question. Um, so, yeah, do you want to take it away? I can't remember what the question was. Sorry. <laughs> it's Okay. So it was, how do you support an organisation through future EPR development alongside the enthusiasm and want to deliver optimization. I mean, I feel like we have kind of touched on that, but I'm not sure if there's any final thoughts. I think for me that the problem we're having now is that enthusiasm and the want for it to do everything and balancing that momentum to keep well, to keep that momentum whilst we, we plan and deliver phases. If you're going big bang like yourself, Simon, it might not be so much of an issue. But we've now got that gap between probably the end of May. And possibly almost the end of the calendar year where changes to the EPR will probably not look very significant. And I, I just want to make sure that everyone thinks oh, it's still happening. It is that living ecosystem that they should be. I think we, I'd go along with what you've said there. I think although we are doing Big Bang, the thing we're trying to do is go back is to get the feedback from the users. Is it doing everything you're expecting it to do? comes back down to the benefits management and making sure that you're getting what you set out for in the business case, which in that case was usability information being available and effectively eliminating paper at the bedside or in clinic um and that's what we're hoping will get done in this in this first way where it doesn't we'll be we'll be knowing that things will be changing so for example it might be next phase might be to try and get the anesthetic machines all connected to make sure all of that information is going to get pumped into the patient record at the moment that's probably the one of the bits that we've still got that's outside of scope um, but again, medical devices and things like that, how we bring all of that into the patient record um, is things we need to sort of build on and, and make it a, 
a, you know, a full interaction with the patient, whether that's a medical device in here or is it a medical device that they've got at home that they send the information back, at, you know, across Internet of Things or whatever it happens to be, um, feeding in with our app providers as well. So we we, we work alongside um, a company called My Recovery as well to get information to make sure that the patients are safe about doing exercises prior to coming in for operations. Now, and that can potentially record, you know, how much exercise the patient's doing but it's getting that in a quality fashion to know does that actually improve the outcome for the patient so i'm hoping in the future it'll be a lot more clinically rich and should be able to drive where we need to to change and develop services that would be the overall that's the overall game i think but medical devices are in scope but a much later phase for our article we moved ahead to the end but we are actually going to be trialing that medical device integration with the epr through our itu and clinical care high, high dependency units just really because of the sheer volume but we've it'll happen but how useful it will be i don't know to the clinicians and we that's know, the balance isn't it yeah a bit like you so we, we've got welsh allen machines for the um at the side of the beds that we'll, we'll be using where possible to give electronic readings back but equally, the, the nurse still needs to do some patient observations that still get manually keyed in. So you can't automate everything. Um, but a bit, again, it's just seeing what difference does that make to people? Um, does it does it change anything specifically? Is there a big improvement um, where you're ending up with a manual process that's running alongside an automated one? Hopefully, it should reduce transcription errors and things like that. Yeah. With your medical devices, are you putting human intervention in that, Simon, so that the result comes across and someone assesses and assures it and then presses the button and then it goes into the record are you having a direct feed into the, the epr probably not fully worked out but so it's going back to the, the welsh allen device so where it's taking um pulse and things of that nature what we will do is a, the checks will be done beforehand to make sure you're looking at the right patient etc and assuming that them checks have all correlated it should send it straight through to the epr in the event that it's offline, it'll be able to store it for a certain amount of time before it sends it um, back to EPR. So you, you've got that continuity, for example, I don't know, Wi-Fi is down or so on. That, that's you. So I might touch base with you. Uh, yeah. you be managing there, that's okay. Um, we've also looked at, we've got a vendor neutral archive as well, where we're looking to possibly bring some bits into there. But in most cases, if it's, um, we're just toying with some bits as well around sort of um, point of care testing, things like that but bring them into some sort of intermediary first so there's a qualification done beforehand. Brilliant. Well, I've got a feeling that you two will be um, continuing your relationship offline <laughs> um, and I bet you've probably got more questions that you both will ask one another. Um, so I hope today's been useful for the pair of you. So is there any final thoughts before we conclude? I'm, I'm good with that, Cassia. Thank you very much. Amazing. I'm good as well. And thank you, Simon, for your advice as well. You too, Shep. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for um, sharing your insight on the topic. Um, and yeah, I'd love to have you back on another one soon.